Hello, I'm Dr. Anne Holdaway, consultant dietitian, and I'd like to welcome you to this podcast, the first in a series produced by the British Association for Parental and Enteral Nutrition, otherwise known as BAPEN. This inaugural series of podcasts is dedicated to bringing to life the British Intestinal Failure Alliance, BIFA, top tips in a format that you can listen into at any time. Based on the content of the top tips created by the BIFA committee, along with invited experts according to the topic, we hope these podcasts and supporting references will help improve your everyday clinical practice and the patient experience. As Education Officer for BAPEN, I have the privilege of interviewing key authors of the BIFA Top Tips, and today I'm hugely privileged to be joined by Dr. Jeremy Nightingale and Dr. Alison Culkin, in which we will be exploring the management of high-output stomas and fistulas. Many of these patients will be supported by various members of the interdisciplinary team and hence I believe this podcast will have broad appeal in influencing nurses, pharmacists, dietitians and doctors. Before we get stuck into the topic, I'd like to introduce my eminent guests. Dr. Jeremy Nightingale's career as a consultant gastroenterologist includes 10 years working in St. Mark's Hospital, London, where he specialised in intestinal failure and inflammatory bowel disease. Prior to this, he worked at Leicester Royal Infirmary, where he set up and established a nutrition support team. He's chairman of the independent charity, the Nightingale Trust for Nutritional Support, chair of the British Intestinal Failure Alliance, BIFA, which is particularly relevant to today's podcast, and was recently appointed president of the coloproctology section of the Royal Society of Medicine. Dedicated to improving knowledge and understanding of clinical nutrition, Jeremy has published many peer-reviewed papers, books and chapters on intestinal failure and nutrition support. He wrote the first advanced curriculum in nutrition for gastroenterology trainees and contributed to the 2021 Association for Nutrition Undergraduate Curriculum in Nutrition for UK Medical Doctors. Jeremy has also contributed to the landmark guidance on nutritional support in adults and the NICE guidelines on ulcerative colitis. In recognition of his contribution to the field of clinical nutrition, Jeremy has received several prestigious awards, including the BAPE and John Leonard Jones Medal. Jeremy is currently working part-time in intestinal failure at University Hospitals Coventry and Warwickshire NHS Trust and continues to dedicate much personal time to writing and publishing on topics relating to intestinal failure and nutrition support. Also joining me today is Dr. Alison Culkin. Alison is a consultant dietitian in intestinal rehabilitation at St. Mark's Hospital London, where Alison is a key member of the nutrition team, initiating and monitoring patients requiring parental nutrition and enteral nutrition, including setting them up for home. Alison's PhD focused on understanding the role of patient knowledge and behaviour change on outcomes in home parental nutrition. Akin to Jeremy, Alison shares her knowledge and expertise through the education of others. She provides the leadership for the clinical update course run by the Parental and Dental Nutrition Group of the British Dietetic Association, which has trained thousands of dietitians on safe and effective provision of nutrition over the years. 
Alison also disseminates her knowledge through book chapters, articles and presentations at national and international level. She represents the dietetic profession on the BIFA committee, sits on the education and clinical practice committee of the European Society for Parental and Enteral Nutrition. And she also broke new ground when she became the first registered dietitian to qualify as a supplementary prescriber in 2017. Alison's current research seeks to compare the effects of two oral nutritional supplements on sodium and fluid status in patients with a high output stoma and will no doubt inform us of the optimum oral nutritional support for these individuals in the future. With their wealth of experience, I'm delighted that both Alison and Jeremy have joined me today to share their insights into the management of individuals with high output stomas. So before we start, Jeremy, I'd like to just ask you as chair of BIFA, if you can outline the aim of BIFA and what inspired you and the committees to develop the top tips. Well, BIFA is a special interest group within BAPEN uh, for those people who are very interested in the management of patients with intestinal failure of all its forms. It's composed of 17 experts, uh, physicians, surgeons, pediatricians, uh, dietitians, pharmacists, nutrition nurses, and a patient, all of whom can give good opinions. And we decided it was time we produced some fairly simple, practical guidelines on some of the common topics that any nutrition support team is likely to come across who deals with patients with intestinal failure. And the guidelines are based mostly on experience of the group, but where possible, backed up by the literature. Each of the top tips has a, a standard format with a, a brief introduction, some key points, which try to be short. We don't always follow that on the more recent ones. Uh, and then there's an explanation of the key points. And then it finishes off with a reading list. And we're, we, we've done 20 of top tips so far, um, but have, we'll do more. And be very grateful if anyone would give uh, ideas for future top tips and who might want to uh, go as the primary author. I'm very well, welcome to receive comments. Uh, comments and volunteers. Oh, thanks, Jeremy. Well, hopefully our audience listening in today will be inspired to actually drop us emails uh, about what else they'd like to see within the top tips. And it's really been great to see so many top tips uh, developed over the last year. It just shows the, everybody how highly productive the BIFA committee uh, has been. So moving on to the topic of focus today, uh, I'd like to ask you again, Jeremy, um, if you can define for us what a high output stoma or fistula is and the circumstances under which it can occur and how common it is. But yes, a high output stoma uh, uh, is, is quite common, but uh, uh, it happens when the output from a stoma or a fistula causes water, sodium and magnesium depletion, essentially giving rise to a patient being dehydrated and very unwell as a result, often in degree of renal failure. The volume at which it occurs is very variable. When I first started, it used to say more than two litres, but now it's come down to about a litre and a half, so sort of ballpark figure if someone's producing more than that. But it obviously depends completely on what the oral intake is. It occurs either shortly after surgery, uh, and traditionally one refers to that as in the first three weeks from an operation, or it can occur longer than that, and it's more of a chronic situation. In general, it's quoted in up to 30% of patients with an ileostomy at some stage get problems of a high output stoma. And certainly from work I did previously, it was in 5% five, 5 of patients with an ileostomy had persistent problems from a high output and needed some sort of salt replacement. 
interesting the colon still in continuity it really very rarely happens at all you mentioned about uh, sort of oral intake and in fact the top tips uh, itself uh, refer to the amount of food or drink taken orally and I wonder Alison if we can bring you in here to talk about uh, are there any aspects of oral intake that you would specifically uh, wish to address as a dietitian in these patients with a high output stoma? Yeah, I think it's important that we don't um, lure ourselves into a false sense of security and just focus on one aspect of the care of these patients, which is the output. And again, if you know if someone, a patient has an output of less than 1.5, but actually they're not eating or drinking anything, then that is a huge issue because they're putting them, you know, the, the patients are at huge risk of malnutrition. Um, whereas what we want is a patient eating and drinking um, a normal amount to maintain their nutritional status and hydrational status with an output of less than 1.5 litres. So I think it's a really important aspect of patient's care that this these, these volumes are when a patient is eating and drinking normally. Thanks, Alison. And I'm sure we'll come on later to talk about, you know, the, the fluid uh, and take the fluid because we see very typically in these patients that with a high output, they'll start drinking more and uh, drinking potentially fluids that make it worse. So I'm sure we'll explore that a little bit later on. Um, in the top tips, the group have really outlined eight key steps, and I'd now like to explore this in further detail with you. So first, um, perhaps, Jeremy, you want to come in on this. What other causes might you consider uh, in excluding uh, in a patient presenting with a high output stoma? The causes probably vary into the two groups as to whether they're occurring acutely in the near time after surgery, which is sort of often extremely common. And the sort of things you have to think of as causing that is any abdominal sepsis, often associated with low albumin, somebody who's taking prokinetic drugs such as metoclopramide, which one forever goes around the nutrition ward round, spots it and then stops them. There are other things like people who've suddenly uh, stopped taking opiates or steroids. The steroids is not uncommon. Somebody may have had severe ulcerative colitis, had an operation, uh, they've been on steroids uh, and suddenly after the operation, someone forgets to put them back on a dose of steroids just to maintain them. Uh, and, and, it, and that can be associated with a high output. And then the, you can also get infection and Clostridium difficile can affect people with ileostomies and cause a high output. So it's worth sometimes screening for that. In the more long term state, the most common reason is people who've got a short bowel which I tended to refer to in the past as less than two meters of small intestine remaining and ending in a stoma. But the other big group are patients who are getting bowel obstruction, intermittent obstruction. And these patients often come intermittently into hospital um, with severe dehydration, often renal failure. And if you go through things more carefully, you'll often find that they have had an episode of uh, colicky abdominal pain and the stoma may have stopped working or they may have vomited. And then several hours or even day later, they then get the problems of the high output. It's after the obstruction resolves, they actually get the high output and present dehydrated. Another clue you can ask for in the history is they may say that their tummy rumbles an awful lot and people can hear them from the other side of the room. And it's often a clue that obstruction uh, is, is present. And, and, it, and the most common place for obstruction is actually at the stoma, which we'll mention in, later on. It's, it's quite useful for medics to actually put a finger in the stoma and see if it's very narrow. Other rarer causes for chronic uh, high output include thyrotoxicosis, celiac disease, diverticular disease, bacterial overgrowth, or, or recurrent disease. 
uh, if you're wanting a, a simple medical thing to set just to tell the staff about uh, doing screening for other causes of uh, uh, high output, you obviously start with CT uh, enterography to see if there's any blockage or overgrowth. And blood tests consist of cortisol, thyroid function, testing for celiac disease and testing the stoma for Clostridium difficile. The ordinary assessment I should have mentioned maybe before is, is the clinical assessment. You ask the patient about thirst, um, which they will always be very thirsty. Uh, their urine output may be low. They may be getting cramps, maybe be feeling faint. They may have noticed sudden weight loss. And, and when you examine them, you're certainly looking at skin turga. But things like the postural uh, blood pressure is important, looking if, if they're an inpatient daily weight is useful and looking at stomal output and urine output. When it comes to bloods, it's basically the urine, urine electrolytes, magnesium, and uh, a random urine sodium. On that, actually, the uh, random urinary sodium, um, because I think there's the myth out there. You know, people think, well, I've measured the sodium. I've taken a blood test. I've measured the sodium. Um, so do you just want to explain a little bit, Jeremy, about the urinary sodium? Well, if someone's... A stomal output, essentially, it's 100 millimoles per litre in the stomal output, and that gets uh, lost. So for every litre of output, you're losing 100 millimoles of sodium. So the person's generally sodium depleted. As a result of that, they, the body produces lots of aldosterone, and aldosterone's action is to conserve all sodium, particularly from the kidney. So it absorbs sodium, but at the expense of the urine, which should, will then have almost no sodium in it. And as you'll hear later on, that's always one of the aims of treatment is to try and uh, get a recordable amount of sodium in the urine. And so obviously uh, with these patients, you were saying how, um, you know, they can present a number of years down the line after they've had their stoma formed or the same with fistulas. So is there any key messages that you would give to people about their, their assessment? Uh, because it might be a dietitian, a nurse, Always, well, I mean, I think assessment, the key bits always look for other causes first as you do as you do it, which obstruction, I've said, is the one thing that's often forgotten about and missed. And it's really important to pick up on uh, short bowels most common. Um, and, and then you're just looking at the time for how dry they are. So, you know, how to re replete them and, and treat them as more of sort of emergency type treatment before you then work out a stabilizing regimen. And Alison, would you like to come in there as a dietitian about your experience with these patients and perhaps from a dietetic perspective, uh, sort of what you might be uh, um, looking at as a cause? Yeah, I think we need to talk about terminology, don't we? Because often we get patients referred and it's, oh, they have an ileostomy. But actually, it's, uh, as Jeremy sort of said, it's often a jejunostomy. And the treatment for a jejunostomy at a patient who has short bowel can be different to a patient who has an ileostomy. So I think it's really important that we, you know, do some imaging, you know, how, what is this patient's length of bowel? What is the quality of their bowel? Because without knowing the length and the quality, it's difficult to then provide appropriate treatment. So I think we need to get our terminology correct and differentiate between um, a jejunostomy and an ileostomy. Often yeah. you don't actually know what, what's remaining. You're, you're just having to assume somebody's got a short bowel. They often come in with a, a label of ileostomy diarrhea. Um, but as I've said, in the long term, the most common reason is they've got a short length of gut remaining. And unless some surgeon has kindly measured how much gut's remaining after an operation, you don't actually know they fall into that group. But you often have to just assume it. 
And do the surgeons very often nowadays actually indicate in the notes what's remaining? Or One tries just... to. The surgeons we work closely with will usually give you a measurement, but it's no good measuring how much you've taken out no. because the starting length of gut is absolutely enormous and probably varies between about three and 10 metres when you look, look through the literature. But I suspect most people's gut, small bowel length is about, uh, about 400 um, centimetres. So the key messages there um, were for our surgeons to actually record what gut is remaining, what length of uh, bowel is remaining, and also that for radiologists it is possible to give uh, to obtain a measure yeah, yes. of of what's there when uh, you come to assess these patients. Great. Um, coming on then to the mechanisms really as to why fluid is lost. Um, and I don't know which of you would like to take this uh, question, but um, can you outline the mechanism? I mean, there's se- several, several mechanisms proposed. Uh, one is loss of normal daily secretions produced in response to food. Uh, which is normally people take, uh, produce about half a litre of saliva, two litres of gastric acid, one and a half litres of pancreatic obiliary secretions. And if you measure doing balance studies, as I've done in the past, most people consume about two litres or two kilograms of food and drink a day. So about six litres of chyme pass the duodenal flexure every day. And then after that, it gets uh, absorbed fairly well. So if you're, if you're in a shortish length, less than a metre of bowel, you're, you're likely to lose a lot of those secretions and you lose more than you take in orally. So loss of normal daily secretions is one component. Other things that are written about gas, gastric acid hypersecretion may occur shortly after surgery in uh, patients who've had a, a bowel resection. There's no, it's not clear whether it occurs in the long term. Um, obviously, if, if for treatments, it's useful in people who've got a very short gut and you're knocking out the normal gastric secretion two litres a day that's reduced, produced in response to food. And the other thing we know from studies I did in the past is the transit of food and fluid in people with a shorter length of gut and a jejunostomy or ileostomy is much quicker than normal people. How do we support these patients who are very thirsty and they're probably desperately wanting to drink more hypotonic fluids? And we're saying, oh, hold on here. We're going to have to limit this. So, Alison, have you got any top tips really for our audience about how they might manage patients who are feeling very thirsty? and how you might overcome this? So I think the most important aspect is to rehydrate the patient. If a patient is um, dehydrated, they need intravenous fluid support to rehydrate them. Um, Usually with normal um, saline, um, 0.9% sodium chloride, plus some magnesium intravenously to rehydrate them to treat their what is often an acute kidney injury, um, because it will be very difficult for patients to maintain themselves on an oral fluid restriction if they are dehydrated their thirst will be overwhelming it will be impossible for them to restrict um, their fluid so i would say that is the number one um, key message is to rehydrate your patients and to to meet their baseline requirements so we often talk about the nice guidelines for fluid management from 2013 which is 25 to 30 mils per kilo one millimole of sodium one millimole of potassium per kilo. And then we are adding on extra uh, fluid to replace these very high losses. You know, some patients have six, seven liters um, from from their stomas. So we really need to rehydrate them properly. 
Well, we've talked about sodium, but we know these patients also have problems with magnesium. So, Jeremy, would you like to enlighten our audience about why they may experience an issue with low magnesium levels? Low magnesium is extremely common uh, and occurs in something like about 80% of patients who've got less than two metres of a small bowel remaining. Uh, it often doesn't cause particularly many symptoms, perhaps a bit, a bit of a tremor, memory not quite so good. Some think it relates to some forms of cramps, but most of the literature is when magnesium and calcium are both down together, but pure low magnesium. We often see patients with extremely low levels walking into clinic, apparently fine but we'll still treat it. The, re the reasons for the low magnesium is, is probably foremost because we've got the high aldosterone levels, which I mentioned earlier, that cause the sodium uh, reabsorption from the kidney. But in doing that reabsorption from the kidney, you can lose both potassium and magnesium out through the kidney. And, and obviously when you're treating low magnesium, rehydrating and correcting sodium depletion is one of the first things to do. Another reason for the low magnesium is the loss of the ileum and colon, which are part of the, the main absorptive areas in the gut for uh, magnesium. Then there's free fatty acids because you don't digest fat well, you get free fatty acids in the lumen and they can uh, bind to uh, magnesium and then it passes out in the stool uh, unabsorbed. That can be an important contributor in some patients, particularly those who are obese and are used to a very high fat intake. And then the last one is sometimes observed proton pump inhibitors. Um, and certainly omeprazole can be associated with low magnesium and certainly stopping the omeprazole sometimes re results in the magnesium returning up to normal. Thanks, Jeremy. Now, just coming back to Alison, really. Alison, you mentioned about the importance of rehydrating these patients before you go on to focus on giving them advice to really prevent them getting into the same situation and breaking out of this vicious cycle. So the top tips refer to the use of oral rehydration solutions. And my own experience with these patients is, uh, you know, compliance can be poor and they do find it difficult to um, take some of these salty drinks. So what top tips have you got really for our audience about improving compliance of these products? So, yeah, we, we know anyone working with patients with um, intestinal failure and high output stomas or fistulas will know that patients really do struggle. They're, the palatability of these products is, is poor. Uh, they're very, very salty. If a patient is well hydrated, then often patients say that they don't taste as salty as when the patient is is dehydrated, which I think is interesting. But I think one of the most important things is that these oral rehydration solutions are made up properly. At St. Mark's, we use, um, we use St. Mark's solution, but that's made up from three powders. So it's glucose, sodium bicarb, and sodium chloride. And often when I was doing the ward rounds, you know, I'd go around the wards and I'd be at house how's your St. Mark's solution today? And patients were like, oh yeah, it's, it's okay today. It's not so bad. And I was like, oh great, lovely, wonderful. And then I'd go around the next day and they'd go, oh, today it was dreadful. It was so salty. It was like drinking the Atlantic. And um, I actually mm -hmm. started thinking about doing some work with our patients on their taste buds because I was thinking, well, how can their experience of this product be so different on a day-to-day -day basis? And off I went and started thinking about that. And then... One day I was watching one of the nursing staff make up the solution and I realized, hmm, I'm not sure that it is our patient's taste buds that is the issue. It may be that there's variability when we're making up this product. So what I did, I did a little audit on the ward once a day um, for five days. I took a sample 
of the um, smart solution that had been made up for our patients. And bear in mind, there's meant to be 90 millimoles of sodium. Well, actually, there was um, a range from, from 100, which would have been fine, up to 250 millimoles of sodium. Wow. Now, can you imagine, you know, it's meant to be 90 and some patients struggle with that, but having a solution with 250 millimoles of sodium, we'll, no wonder these poor patients weren't, um, weren't able to, to drink it. So I think that's one of the most important things is make sure that it has been made up properly with the right, um, the right ingredients in the right, the right quantities. The second thing that we often ask patients to do is to add a little bit of flavoring. So often we recommend things like lime juice or lemon juice, you know, so you have that nice tart flavor, which cuts through the salts. But this was another audit I did when I, um, I made some St. Mark's solution up to the right concentration. And then I asked patients, well, how much flavoring would you add to it? And they were adding huge amounts of flavoring, and um, because obviously they wanted to disguise the taste. And what this did was it significantly reduced the sodium content, basically rendering it ineffective. Mm. So we have to be very careful when we're saying, when we're recommending adding flavoring for patients that we only really do add a splash of flavoring or maybe adding it to the full liter um, at the beginning of the day rather than adding it to each glass because it can it can dilute down the um the sodium content therefore making it um a bit of a useless product of course what we actually need um is a pre-flavored pre um weighed out you know in a nice little sachet which we did have with a product called glucodrate which we which we did um, a randomized control trial of um several years ago now which mm -hmm. patients you know really did love they loved the palatability of it. it was made with sodium citrate um so it had that nice um flavor um and sadly that was taken off the market now but we are at so much we are looking at taking that 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 um that approach forward that we would have a pre-packaged pre-flavored oral rehydration solution for patients of course we encourage patients to um have it cold um sip it through a straw um but again i was you know i was thinking about sipping a liter of cold salty water during the winter months must be incredibly difficult um for our patients to achieve so i think what we we need is is a better a better product really Mm, so that's a call to action for any manufacturer listening into this podcast. Get in touch probably with Alison and the team there at St. Mark's to look at developing a product that'd be acceptable to these patients. Um, Jeremy, I'm, I think you want to come in on this too. Well, there's just, I did do a study in the past using sodium chloride capsules. They had to take, they were 500 milligrams, 14 in mm. the course of a day, but it did actually work yeah. if you take them spread out throughout the course of the day. And it, it's just another option you can use if people won't take the, or can't take the, the, the drinks regularly. Mm. And I'm sure there's some variability amongst patients as well. You know, we've all been told by public health to reduce our salt intake. Yeah. And so your sensitivity to sodium and salty drinks and salty foods can be very different. Aren't it? You know, people aren't even putting salt in their cooking now. And you find that those who follow the rules, you know, from public health about reducing salt really have done it fastidiously. Um, and their threshold to salt may be very different from somebody who's been eating a lot of salty foods. Alison, you want to? I mean, I, I think. I think that's a really important point because it's actually about education, isn't it? Mm. It's about educating patients um, on why we're asking them to do what are quite unusual things. You know, we're asking them to 
to, to stop drinking when they're feeling thirsty. And then we're asking them to drink a salty drink when they're feeling thirsty. And it's have, explaining to patients the mm. mechanisms and the reasons why we're asking them to do what, what we need them to do. And again, often patients will say, oh, but what about my hypertension? You know, mm. you know, so it's, you know, often patients are quite anxious um, about following following this advice, but it's it's explaining to them and giving them that understanding that yeah. will help that, that will help them you know, be able to, you know, to, to consume these, these oral rehydration solutions. Yeah. And education, like you say, so it has to underpin the advice that we give um, so that we can motivate our patients to make those changes. Jeremy. And I'd also just say that salt's a very good treatment. If somebody comes in with cramps and they've all cramped up completely, if you get them to put some salt on their hand and, and just eat it, lick it and dissolves a lot in the mouth, it actually will make it better within a few minutes. It's very successful for that. I also find it's very good for sport if you get cramp uh, and it, yeah. it often seems to be neglected from a lot of the sort of the sports advice around yeah. uh, that salt does correct most cramps straight away uh, if, if it doesn't work then you've got to start thinking maybe about magnesium yeah yeah great um now we did touch very lightly on the uh, on diet there so i don't think we can talk about high output stomas without mentioning diets so again back to you alison what dietary adjustments might you be advising on well i mean again it is very patient specific um because you know patients with a high put stomach i mean all different shapes and sizes you know you may have a patient who is very malnourished um, you know, with a low BMI who has been struggling in the community for years. And in that situation, you would be encouraging a high energy, high protein, high fat diet. We also might be reducing the amount of fiber that the patient is eating because we, we know that fiber travels through the bowel quite quickly, um, decreasing transit time. And what we want is for, for the nutrition to stay in the bowel as long as possible. So it's absorbed as, as, as much as um, it can be. In comparison to that, we may have patients who are overweight um, or living with obesity. And in that scenario, as, as Jeremy previously mentioned, if they're having a high fat diet, that could actually be contributing um, to the magnesium losses. So in those patients, we might actually be encouraging them to try and follow a lower fat diet in order to try and uh, reduce the, the magnesium losses um, from the bowel. So again, it's very much a individual patient assessment depending on their nutritional status and um, their current oral intake uh, as well. So there is no sort of one size fits all. Some patients will need a high energy, high protein, um, low fiber uh, approach, high fat approach, whereas other patients might actually just need a reduced fat approach. Again, we've sort of touched on salt already, haven't we? You know, again, mm. we, we would be asking patients to eat salty foods, add salt to their diet. And again, that education surrounding that about why we're asking them to do that would be really, really important. Mm -hmm. And do you advise them on, uh, you know, high potassium foods as well? Or um, so, so again, potassium doesn't usually tend to be a problem in these mm -hmm. patients. Um, certainly, we might be encouraging them to eat foods that um, are higher in magnesium. But again, it's the salt that is the real focus yeah. from, an, from an electrolyte perspective. Um, it, it's the salt. I suppose, again, if a patient is very malnourished, we may then start to think about using oral nutritional supplements and again um, because these patients are usually on a fluid restriction we would be focusing on um, some of the low volume 
um, oral nutritional supplements. I mean, there's very limited data to support this, but again, you know, some of the oral um, rehydra- uh, nutritional supplements might be beneficial. You know, they're high cal per mil um, um, oral nutritional supplements. And again, if in some patients we might be thinking about um, enteral feeding, so overnight nasogastric feeding or feeding through a gastrostomy if they're malnourished. But what we found uh, working with these patients is that there are no enteral feeds that are high enough in sodium to help these patients um, re- reduce their sodium losses from the bowel. So often what we do at St. Mark's is we actually add sodium to the feed, you know, to the enteral feed to try and improve the sodium um, absorption in, in the gut. So that's certainly something that we would recommend if, if patients are requiring enteral nutrition. Mm-hmm. And Jeremy, have you got anything to add? Well, there? I was only going to say that we probably ought to mention that things like elemental dart are very hyperosmolar. Mm. And if you give an elemental dart to these patients, that will actually increase their fluid output by quite a lot. And it's actually detrimental. You're, you're always with the, the, the intake, you're aiming for something ideally that's 300 milliosmoles in total and it's got mm. a sodium concentration of 100, uh, about 100 millimoles per litre. Uh, is what you what you're aiming for all, all, all the time, uh, and if you're sort of thinking about anything new to try, that's the sort of principle to to put in the put in your mind. Yeah, and obviously the other massive problem with the elemental um, diet is it's very low in energy, mm. very low in protein. You know, so yeah. it's definitely not something that we would recommend. We would recommend a polymeric oral nutritional yeah. supplement or enteral feed. Okay, well, um, with some patients, you know, despite best efforts in adjusting fluid and diet, um, their output may remain very high. So um, Jeremy, would you like to discuss when you would introduce low paramide? Once they've restricted their oral fluid and they're on some sort of glucose saline like solution, if the output's still up, then one can start using things such as low paramide. Um, usual dose is four milligrams, four times a day, taken about half an hour before food, sometimes tipped out of its capsule. Um, and it, and it, it can be helpful. Often we go to very high doses in these patients, which becomes very difficult to, to actually do. Um, you can end up with sort of 16 milligrams four times a day, but you can imagine taking that number of capsules is, is really quite hard. But uh, there's, there's some information that it's a little bit better. The, the worry with high-dose loperamide really comes from uh, uh, addicts abroad who've used it as an opiate substitute and taken massive doses, usually sort of 100 milligrams daily, and, and then have had the same sort of problems as with the opiates, and there are record, recorded deaths with high-dose loperamide. Uh, as a result of that, we wrote a, a, a BIFA position statement about high-dose loperamide, certainly suggesting that the dose of loperamide never exceeded 80 milligrams per day. And we also suggested anyone before going on low paramide has an ECG done and the QT intervals measured. And it's also done after starting on the high dose uh, low paramide um, because the QT interval can be long. Um, ventricular tachycardia uh, and, and sudden deaths have been reported, but are incredibly rare. And in our group of patients, the low paramide is probably not going to be absorbed that well. Uh, it does go around the entrohepatic circulation and that's all pretty disrupted. So you haven't got the constant reabsorption of bile salts. They tend to get lost. So as will the low paramide. So it would seem reasonable. You actually need much higher doses than normal in, the, in this group of patients. If the low paramide isn't uh, working very well, sometimes one's add, adds in choline phosphate. 
uh, that's uh, uh, say 30 milligrams uh, four times a day, sometimes up to 60. But one has to be very careful with codings. It's, it's an opiate and people get addicted to it. When I did balance studies in the past, I had great trouble when I stopped coding abruptly uh, and tried to get them to do the balance studies because part of the withdrawal was the output went high. They also got, went, had shaky and they had a sort of uh, opiate withdrawal type reaction to it. Uh, and in the elderly, they can be particularly sensitive to it. So I don't recommend codeine phosphate, certainly not as a far first off, though there is evidence that it does uh, further reduce output and can be a beneficial thing to add in to loperamide and maybe stop having to take these great massive uh, doses of loperamide. Mm. And I think what I see is, is these patients, you know, will often read the labels on these, you know, the medication and and uh, get very distressed, but th- that they've been told to take these very high yes. doses. So, again, I think it comes back to the point you made, Alison, about education is key. Um, you know, that they're, they're not taking what is a standard dose. And I think you mentioned, Jeremy, the half hour before the food. I think, again, we see patients coming through who are just you know, taking the loperamide after, after after eating and the advice is always taking it half an hour before. Um, now, I know also in the top tips, you talk about omeprazole, that it may have a role. Can you explain more and also advise on the potential side effects, such as the risk of hypomagnesemia and, and bone loss in these patients? Well, omeprazole is certainly useful in reducing normal gut secretions. And in work I did previously, in those who were net secretors, so they were producing more from their stoma output than they were taking in orally. In that group, it certainly made a difference and it reduced, reduced their output. In most routine patients who've got a high output, it's not really known whether it makes a difference. I, I'm slightly cynical about whether it does and, and certainly think it's something worth trying. But if it doesn't make a difference, I think it should be stopped, not just routinely continued. And I think there probably are too many patients who are just put on it uh, in, 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 a, in a good dose, 40 milligrams twice a day, and they maybe don't need it. I think it's only the net secretors who are on parental support who need a proton pump inhibitor to, to re- definitely reduce their output by a fair bit. Uh, and omeprazole has been associated with uh, cardiac problems, I think, as, as well as the osteoporosis and, and the low magnesium. And I've certainly seen several patients who've had a persistent low magnesium and hasn't responded to other treatments who have, it, it's then become into the normal range after the omeprazole has been stopped. And it's another reason for maybe not just routinely giving the, the omeprazole. And um, in the top tips, you mentioned about increasing the dose of omeprazole to achieve a pH uh, yes, greater I mean, than the, five. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's some, sometimes one does that in hospital. Uh, if you can get the fresh stomal output, if it stands for ages, it's, it's, it's useless because it just becomes more and more acidic as the bacteria uh, work on the contents. But if you can get a fresh output and test the pH, you, you should, by giving enough omeprazole, make the output uh, very much more sort of alkaline, the pH of greater than five is what should should happen. It's not totally reliable, but it's just something that you can, you can sometimes do. If you do it and the pH comes out at two or three, something like that, and you certainly can bump up your dose of omeprazole. Mm. And what about octreotide? We used to use octreotide a lot. When I did balance studies a long time ago, I found that omeprazole and octreotide were about the same. In theory, octreotide does more because it uh, it slows down gut motility and it reduces pancreatic obiliary secretions. Uh, and it may be more beneficial if there's a fistula, perhaps, because you're stopping the pancreatic enzymes coming, coming through the system. But gen- rarely does one actually clinically use octreotide now because it's expensive. The injections are quite painful. 
Um, but having said that, there are occasional patients where all your other treatments aren't working. If you're doing it, you try it in hospital as a subcutaneous injection two or three times a day uh, in the daytime. There's no point giving it nighttime because you're blocking out the effect of food on secretions mostly. Uh, and if it does work and you're convinced it does, then you might think about sending the patient home with a long-acting injection of octreotide or langreotide. But it's, it's generally not something we use very often at all now. And um, what about the use of, um, you know, subcut saline with magnesium? Yeah, I mean, I think that's... Uh, uh, useful in the patients who are not managing on your oral regimen uh, and are still getting problems of the dehydration uh, and they're not so bad that they need daily um, saline or parenteral nutrition you've got somewhere in between so if you can get away with going say two or three times a week with a subcutaneous infusion of saline almost certainly with some magnesium in the, in the bag as well uh, it can be quite useful though it does take uh, up 10 hours or more to give it does cause a bit of swelling of the limb but it's relatively safe and easy to give um, uh, it, the next step is obviously to have a hickman type line in and then infuse something three more times a week uh, in, intravenously having to use the full sort of aseptic technique though if you have a hickman type line it's easier in a sense because you can give it over four hours and it doesn't take so long but there are quite a number of patients in whom the subcutaneous uh, infusions do seem to have worked i know it's not done by many people and you've got to set it up in the community but it is a, a relatively safe system that I think perhaps we should use more often. And just uh, really a final question is how well cared for are these individuals, you know, particularly when they're out in the community, um, do they tend to be there sort of languishing the community, not seeking advice because if their operation, their surgery was a number of years ago, they might just put up with this. Um, so, you know, if you've got any key messages for our audience about how we would ensure these patients have access to the right care. Ideally, everyone with an ileostomy would at some stage be just assessed with at least a random urine sodium would give you a starting point because we, we know there are five uh, percent you know, or maybe more that are out in the community who are not being recognized as having problems. Uh, they, they may or may not all have been advised on having a high amount of sodium intake uh, to help them. Um, mm. But I think the patients are, are actually common and there are probably a lot that aren't being picked up. And, and the risk if you're not picked up and you're chronically dry is that you damage the kidneys and go into renal failure and you can go into chronic renal failure. Mm. And I should add, if, you, if these patients come through a, a, a renal team, it's terribly important. They do the lots of rehydrating. There is a danger sometimes that they get dialyzed and that actually take, usually takes off a bit more fluid. And so it can make the, the kidney function uh, worse. So one has to be very careful that rehydration dominates in the, in the management, even when they come in with uh, severe looking renal failure. Mm. And Alison, would you like to comment about access to dietetic support? Because I know you know, in our area, we're, we're very short of dietitians. Um, patients can wait months to see a dietitian when they've got problems out in the community. Um, at the time of surgery, they're lucky if they get to see a dietitian in my locality uh, after the surgery, because it's seen as, oh, you know, we do a lot of this surgery. Here's a booklet, maybe see the stoma nurse and get you home. So what about access to dietetics? Yeah, it's interesting because I think, again, there's the acute situation, isn't there, where patients mm. may have had uh, a newly formed ileostomy and it will take time for that ileostomy to adapt. Um, and often, especially 
now with ERAS programs, you know, patients are in and out of hospital pretty quickly. In the mm. old days, you know, they'd often be in for a week and they might have the opportunity to get referred to a dietitian and um, have advice on how to manage their high output stoma. Whereas now I think they are discharged a lot faster and it's wonderful that they will hopefully that, I mean, they must get to see a stoma nurse and that stoma nurses are a wonderful resource for educating patients about um, high output stomas. But again, I do worry that these patients then go home, they feel thirsty, they start drinking and that vicious cycle just goes on and on and on. So, and we know that there is a high proportion of patients that are readmitted post-surgery in AKI and this is you know devastating for the patient but it also costs the NHS a huge amount of money whereas if they were advised on to take an oral rehydration solution then potentially some of these um, admissions could be avoided. I think for often community dietitians will get referrals for a malnourished patient um, who is lethargic, who is tired, um, who, you know, maybe the GP then does some bloods and there is an element of renal impairment. In that situation, I would say definitely get a urine sodium because that will help dictate, you know, what is actually, you know, what, what is going on with the patient. Are they actually in need of a, a hospital admission to rehydrate them intravenously? in order to get on top of that thirst, all the things that we've talked about already. But yes, I agree, Anne, you know, having a, you know, a sheet of paper given to a patient is not, is not adequate. And these patients often will require intensive dietetic treatment to improve their nutritional status and to reverse their problems with hydration. There are some um, helpful patient groups, as well as the Ileostomy Association, who have advice um, on their website. Um, but if there are dietitians you know, out there struggling um, for, with patients with a high output ileostomy, you know, you can always contact um, contact the dietitians at St. Mark's who would be more than happy to give advice. And we share our resources all the time with, with other um, dietetic departments. And that's great to know. And Jeremy, is there anything else you'd want to add here? Uh, no, more generally, just remembering that if there's any colon still in circuit, whether you know, surgeons have left some defunctioned, if you can bring it back into circuit with an operation, it will almost always solve all the problems of the high output. It's, ter- it's terribly useful. The other mm-hmm. thing I didn't mention was treatment of the uh, hypomagnesemia, which I should have done, which I've said included rehydrating a patient um, mm-hmm. to, uh, to try and get rid of the hyperaldosteronism. You may give magnesium supplements, of which magnesium oxide, aspartate, and glycerophosphate are the, are the main ones used. Aspartate seems to be the most popular now. Mm-hmm. May give 1-alpha-colecalciferol, which increases magnesium absorption uh, in the gut specifically. Uh, and then there's reducing or cutting out uh, a meprazole if it's there. And yeah. then lastly, there's the, the reducing the lipid in the diet in some patients also can help. And it's interesting, I see a lot of patients uh, in gastro clinics where they, they're on a meprazole and you say, why are you on a meprazole? And you find that they've been on a meprazole for years because at some time they took anti-inflammatories because they had a musculoskeletal yes. disorder or pain. And, you know, and, you know uh, well, I think we can start by getting got you, uh, you know, off this meprazole. So finally, are there any key resources you would direct our audience to? Obviously, we'll direct them to the Biffa top tips on this very subject matter. Are there any other key resources you'd like to highlight to our audience today? There's the Frontline Gastroenterology article that uh, I wrote 
it's number 13, 140 to 151 in frontline gastroenterology. There's a quite a good summary about management of high, of a high output stoma. And I think it's got most of what we've said in it. Well, thank you so much to both Jeremy and Alison for joining me today to discuss um, the sort of Biffer top tips on managing high output stomas. Um, I'm sure the audience uh, will feel really enlightened from all that you've shared. Uh, obviously, we'll have the key resources in the show notes. Um, but yeah, thank you for joining us today. And thanks so much to Alison and Jeremy. Rounding up, I'd like to thank Alison and Jeremy once again for joining me today to share with all of us their expertise and knowledge on the management of high output stomas and fistulas. I'm sure that, like me, you will have enjoyed all of the content of today's podcast. Do visit the show notes accompanying this podcast if you'd like to read further on the subject that we've discussed today. And uh, do look forward to joining me and other experts in the field on further podcasts exploring the content of the Biffa Top Tips. Thank you very much for listening in.